All right. Well, let's uh, bow our heads and let's, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you, uh, Lord, as we look at those pictures and um, look back on the past year, uh, we thank you for your faithfulness, for being with us, Lord, uh, bringing us through both joys and uh, difficulties. Lord, you show yourself faithful. We thank you, Lord God. And Lord, we pray as we get into your word, may you speak to us. May your Holy Spirit move uh, in our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, how many of you, any of you uh, college football fans? Anybody? A few? Okay. You know, this past Monday, they had the college football championship. So we have a new college football champion for the year. Um, I know many of you aren't big sports fans, but indulge me for a little bit this week. I'm going to show you a picture, and I want to see how many of you can identify what these images have in common. Any of you know, what do these images have in common? Okay, sports, yes. That is the obvious one. Definitely sports. Anything else? Champions? Close. You know what they all have in common? They represent teams that lost championships. <laughs> oh! Hey, each year, right, you have, the, you know, different sports, you have your champions, right, the championship game, and they make the championship gear for both teams, right? They got to get ready for both teams case one or the other team wins the championship, right? So, but of course we all know only one team can win the championship, right? So this was a, a disappointing year for me football-wise, right? My teams, uh, it was a little level of disappointment, but as you can tell, I am not wallowing, but I am sporting my championship gear. I am still enjoying the Rams having won the last Super Bowl, you know, so that's why I'm wearing this hoodie today. Not the most pastor-like gear, but uh, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm representing my championship team, right? But each year, they make gear for both teams. Now, it's interesting, leading up to the Super Bowl last year, actually Cincinnati Bengal fans outspent Rams fans, Okay. So you know what that means? You had a lot of disappointed shoppers, right? They spent all their gear, and the Cincinnati Bengals lost the championship. Now you may wonder, what happens to all that, all the clothing, clothing, right? All the gear that they made, what happens to them, right? I don't know, any of you, I'm, I'm sure you are begging to find the answer to that question. Well, let me tell you. Of course, we know there are people who are in poverty. There are people who have financial difficulties, right? Difficult situations around the world. 
So there are many people around the world wearing 2017 Dodgers championship gear, 2022 Bengals championship gear, right? 2011 Miami Heat gear. They get shipped to other places. They get donated where people need clothing, right? So somewhere around the world, you might see, hey, 2022 Cincinnati Bengals national, uh, Super Bowl champions, right? Well, they didn't win, but that's where it goes, right? So you may be thinking, uh, Pastor Mike, where are you going with this? That's a good question. I'm sure about maybe 2% of you are really interested in this topic, right? And I'm probably half of that 2%, so it's probably mainly only me that's really interested in this. But there's a point. Here's where I'm going with this, okay? Where we left off in Mark, we can go back to Mark from where we started off. And where we left off in Mark... Jesus' authority was being challenged, if you remember, right? The chief priests, the scribes, uh, the elders, they came up and challenged Jesus. And once again, today we will see his opposition come to challenge Jesus. This time, his critics are going to team up together. Now imagine the scenario where you have, like I say in today, you have different political parties or different people with different beliefs, right, who are used to challenging each other, debating each other, disagreeing with each other, but they all come together with a common goal because they have a common opponent that they want to defeat. Now I bet in their minds, we're going to see today, that Jesus' critics, his opponents, I bet I can just imagine in their mind when they're coming to Jesus, they plotted together, they came together, and they said, we have it. We're going to get him this time. We're going to defeat him. We have the winning formula to finally beat Jesus, to catch him, to trap him. Because they conspired, and they come up, and we're going to see there's going to be three attempts Three challenges to Jesus. So I'm using my imagine here. I can imagination. I can picture them coming up to Jesus with their long robes, but behind their robes, I picture they're sporting their championship shirt. They're going. Their shirt is going to read Sanhedrin three, Jesus zero. I imagine that they're going to be so confident. We're going to get him this time. We've challenged him before, but this time we're coming together. We're going to stump him. We got him where we want him. Was that a stretch? Okay, that's probably the biggest stretch of a sermon analogy that I've used. But you won't forget it. Okay. In our time in Mark, wrapping up, right? They're going to challenge Jesus, right? But... They're going to say, we're going to want to win. We're going to defeat Jesus. But defeating Jesus this time is not about a score. Defeating Jesus is going to mean life and death. Defeating Jesus means his death. It's not just a score. This time it's his death. Now, I mentioned before they tried to previously challenge Jesus, but now... They have a strategy. And if you mentioned in our, if I've mentioned before, in our time of Mark, we're almost done in Mark. 
And my hope for us when we've been studying and we've been looking at Mark, my hope is that we will see Scripture more than just quotes, more than just a little messages and fortune cookie, more than just little memes kind of things to hold on to, remember, but that we're going to see the story unfold. That what we see in the Gospels is firsthand written accounts, eyewitness of Jesus, who he is, what he taught, what had happened, and what he's going to do, right? So as we're seeing things, these things unfold, especially as we're going to this part in Mark, what we're seeing is the events that's going to lead up to his eventual death and resurrection. That these, all these things happened in history and time and place. So hopefully we get this idea. And where we are in Mark, Jesus is just days away from the cross. Now we're a couple months away from the cross or in our time. But in this time in Mark, he's days away from the cross. So imagine that. You're Jesus. You've been spending these years traveling, teaching the people, healing people, meeting people's needs, being challenged, and now you know you are days away from the cross. We're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And I mentioned his challengers. The first challengers that come up is the Pharisees and the Herodians. Verse 13 reads like this. And they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So right away, I'll stop there. So right away, Mark is setting the stage, right? They're setting a trap for Jesus. But Jesus is very aware of what's happening. Do you recognize what their strategy is? The Pharisees and the Herodians come together and they want to propose a dilemma. Trap him in a question. And their question is to Jesus, is it lawful for us to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Now you may think, what's the dilemma? All right, what's the dilemma that they're posing with Jesus? If you remember in the previous chapter... The elders, the scribes, they came up to Jesus and they questioned his authority. Who gives you the authority to say and do these things? And Jesus proposed his own question to them. And he says, if you answer this question, I will tell you by whom gives, you know, how I got this authority. And Jesus asked them, by which authority did John's message, his baptism come from? Was it from God or was it from man? It stumped them. It stumped the religious leaders. Why? Because they knew if they say John's message of baptism was from God, then they're guilty because they rejected it. They rejected what John the Baptist's message was. So now they're guilty. But if they say it's from man, what did they fear? They feared the people. 
Because the people believed John's message was from God. So they feared the people. So what they do here with Jesus, they present a question to Jesus to trap him. Because if they say, if Jesus says not to pay the tax to Caesar, then what does that make him out to be? He's opposing the government. He's opposing Roman rule. So he's going to be made an enemy from the Roman government, right? If he says to not pay the tax, or no, wait, wait, did I get that wrong? Let me get that wrong. If he says to pay the tax, what is it going to do? It's going to be unpopular with the people, right? Say pay the tax to people. They didn't like being, paying the tax to Caesar. So they're saying, let's set him up. If he says pay the tax, the people are going to be like, wait a second. He wants us to pay the tax to Caesar. Dent his popularity with the people. If he says not to pay the tax to Caesar, then he makes himself an enemy out of Caesar. You follow the dilemma there? Right? Jesus tried to propose a question to them, and they were in a dilemma, so they said, well, let's put a dilemma to Jesus. But what ends up happening? How does Jesus respond? Verse 16. And he brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. See, the Pharisees and Herodians, they thought they had Jesus with this question. Who would he align with? Who would, be more, who would he sympathize with more? Surely, I'm sure they expected him to say, give to God, right? He'll align with God. And then we can set him up to be against the Roman the emperor, the government. And we'll have cause to bring him up to be arrested, right? But Jesus' response, it's wise. Give back to the government what is due to the government. But no, don't neglect to give to God what belongs to God. In other words, he says, if, you are, if you're in the government and they says you are to pay this tax... Pay the tax. That does not mean you are being disloyal to God. But just do not neglect to give God what is due to God. He stumps them. Right? They thought they had him trapped. But he clearly aced this test. And they're amazed. They're like, whoa. Didn't think of that one. Didn't think of that answer. Jesus shut them up, and his answer couldn't be disputed. So what's next? Next comes the Sadducees, verse 18. And some Sadducees, who say that there's no resurrection, came to him and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no offspring. And the second one took her and died, leaving behind no offspring. And the third, likewise. 
And so all seven left, no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. So here's the next test. So here are the Sadducees. Now, one thing to note that Mark gives us, tells us, one thing we should know about the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection. They only held to Moses' books, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. They only held those as authoritative. So into their mind, as they read and interpret Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's no clear teaching of the resurrection in those books, according to them. So they rejected the notion, this belief, that there is a resurrection. But they're using this, right? They're quoting, they're quoting Moses, and they're proposing this scenario, this hypothetical scenario, right? Because there is a tradition, right? So if uh, someone marries a, a woman, and they have no child, and he dies, that it was a custom for the brother to take the woman as a wife, to honor the widow so that she is not left without help or support. And also to honor the name of his brother. Now, if you have siblings, I'm sure you're thankful we don't follow this custom, right? We are thankful this custom, we are not bound by this custom. But this is the scenario in which they, they present to Jesus. So Jesus, right, you could tell they don't believe in the resurrection. I think they're trying to pose this question to strike down this idea of resurrection, but also to trap him. A modern question would be something along the lines of, if someone remarries, for whatever reason, and we go up to heaven, who's married to who? I don't know if you ever thought of that, right? That's the question. How does Jesus respond? Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Ouch. What Jesus does, he calls them out on their ignorance. He says, is this why you're mistaken? You don't understand. You don't understand the scriptures, nor do you understand the power of God. Look, Jesus will not be punked. I think that should be a t-shirt. I need that bumper sticker. Jesus will not be punked. You cannot stump Jesus with a question. Because he'll see right through you. And he sees right through them. He first addresses, well, look, I know what you believe. And what you don't believe. 
First, Jesus clarifies that when the resurrection occurs, people will neither marry or be given in marriage. Notice his answer covers both male and female, men and women. Men will not be marrying, nor will women be given in marriage in the resurrection. Our relationships with each other will change. Now, if you think about it, this makes sense, right? The church, the body of Christ, represents our new reality, right? Changes our dynamic of how we see each other. That we enjoy in full when we're with the Lord. When we're with the Lord, we'll fully realize this relationship, this change in dynamic. Now, each of us, we may have familial relationships. In this room, there are spouses. There's parents and children. Siblings, right? But when we're all in Christ, if Christ is our Savior and Lord, what new dynamic do we experience or do we have relationally? We are all what? Children of God. Also what? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that a little weird? If you're sitting next to your parents, and you are, you are believers in Christ, Jesus your Lord and Savior. When you see them, yes, they're still your parents. But they're their brother and sister in Christ. If you're sitting next to your spouse, if you are both in Christ together, that relationship dynamic supersedes and pervades all our other relationships. So that in our relationship with God, we become first and foremost, right, among each other. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that dynamic affects all our human and earthly relationships with parents, spouse, friends, and so forth, right? So it makes sense that when we are with the Lord, how we relate to each other changes. We fully realize this dynamic that it's no longer that we're being given in marriage as we know it today. Relationship, you think about it today, right? Marriage is often thought of as the ultimate relationship. Not by many, not, not by everybody. But if you remember when you were a kid, how many of you thought of getting at some point when you were younger? Only a few of you, right? When you were younger, perhaps... You thought marriage was like the ultimate relationship experience. I want to get married someday, right? And when you get married, usually it comes along with, I want to be married and have five kids, four kids, six kids. Maybe you thought, let me be realistic, I can only handle one kid. Maybe I'll get a dog instead, right? Perhaps, right? But on earth, marriage relationship is almost like that ultimate kind of relationship because it opens, it perpetuates all other relationships, right? The marriage relationship, God designed the marriage relationship, so with the husband and wife, they bring forth children. And those children get married and bring forth children, and that's how God designed us to fill the earth. But when we're in the resurrection, that is no longer needed. Why? Second thing, what, oops, sorry, I went back on accident. What is Jesus tells us that we will be like the angels 
meaning that we will be eternal beings. Our bodies will not perish. Now, this is contrary to popular belief. A lot of people believe, well, then when we die, we become angels, right? You've heard that saying before? Maybe you've heard somebody say when when loved one dies that they become their guardian angel. That's not biblical. I don't know if that's shattering to you. I don't know if your mind's blown or if you're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Right? The Bible doesn't teach that. We become angels, but Jesus is saying we are like angels. What does that mean? We will not perish. We will not die. Thus, we don't need to reproduce in that marriage relationship. So the ultimate relationship is us and God, but also I'm sure we will enjoy the relationship with each other. Some people wonder, well, what is it going to be like, Pastor? What's our relationships going to be like? And the question is, I don't really know. I don't really know. And I, th- I kind of like that it's a mystery. You know what I mean? How many of you are okay with mysteries? How many of you hate mysteries? You want to know what it's like, and it's a stumbling block for you. I kind of like that it's a mystery, that we don't fully know what it's going to be like. But here's the third thing that Jesus points out. Jesus makes it clear to the Sadducees that God is the God of the living and not of the dead. And he makes sure he points out the words of, Moses, of his exchange with Moses, God's exchange with Moses, right? They only hold the words of Moses, the, the books of Moses as authoritative, so Jesus cites it. What does he say? What does it say? God reveals himself as, I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is a God of the living, not of the dead. I think our relationships will change, but we will be aware of each other after we die. I think there's some evidence to point that, that after we die, we'll be aware of each other. I don't know what that's going to be like, though. Right? I don't know if we're going to be able to spend eternity. I don't know if you've thought of this and like, you know, when we get to heaven, I want to ask David. David. So just be honest with me. Were you really scared about Goliath? I, I'm sure David is going to hope that no one asks him about Bathsheba, though. You know, I, 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 think, I think we will be able to identify each other, but I kind of hope that we don't remember all the bad things. There's a lot of things I hope no one asks me about or that I don't want to remember. Right? But I think what's important for Jesus to say is that, look, he is a God of the living, not of the dead. That's our great hope that we have. So here again, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they failed to trap Jesus. And then the Sadducees tried to set up Jesus, but only to be caught in their own ignorance. Jesus calls them out. So finally, the third scenario. Here comes a scribe. And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that answered them well, asked him, 
What commandment is the foremost of all? What is the greatest or foremost of all the commandments? Now here is a scribe with a trick question, right? How do you rank God's commandments? Parents, how many of you have ever been asked this question? If you have multiple kids. So, which one's your favorite? Parents, look at kids. Don't give it away. Have you ever been asked that question? So which one's your favorite? I've actually seen some parents who are a little too brutally honest. And they say, oh, (laughs) that's easy. (laughs) Definitely so-and-so. That is the incorrect answer. (laughs) Especially in front of your kid. What's the correct answer? I love them all the same. Hopefully that is your truthful answer, right? Just for my own kid's sake, that is our answer. (laughs) We love you all equally the same. Truthful. I was going to say, like, may God strike me down if that's not true, but... I just mentioned earlier today, i got to stop saying stuff like that. But that is true. So that's the type of question they try to stump Jesus. Which one is the greatest? Which commandment is the foremost? No other gods before No idols? No, I take the Lord's name in vain. Which one is the greatest? Jesus answered, The foremost is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So here Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4, chapter 6, 4 through 5, and Leviticus. This chapter 19:18. Again, Jesus using the scripture that cannot be debated. Here in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, Jesus quotes what's called the Shema, right? This was a confession of faith that the devout Jews would recite morning and evening. That they held on to. It affirms the unity of God, but also that covenantal relationship God has with his people. It's interesting, this commandment, so to speak, right, addresses our relationship with God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Notice this relationship we have with God. One, it acknowledges He is your God, right? You shall what? Love the Lord your God. Secondly, what is it so? It shows the dynamic of the relationship you have with God, right? You shall love God. That's the relationship you ought to have with God. He is your God, and he is your God that you love. And the third thing, it's not just you kind of love it whenever you want, but what does it say? You love the Lord your God with what? All of your being. All of your mind. All of your heart's all of your strength. 
All of your being, you are to love the Lord your God. So what does Jesus do? He sums up all the command, the commandments, the first devoted to God. Love the Lord your God. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And he says the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. No, no, no matter what you think of yourself, right? Whether you have a healthy perception of yourself, a good quote-unquote self-esteem or not, or whether you have a negative self-esteem or self-image, no matter where you, you think of, of yourself, we all love me some me. You're like, what? I love me some me. What do I mean by that? No matter what you say, you, it's positive self-image or not, you want to take care of yourself, right? We naturally love ourselves. We look out for ourselves. We care for ourselves. We do all these things for our benefit. What we desire, what we hope for, right? If we truly hated ourselves, wouldn't we just kind of appreciate the fact that we don't like ourselves? You know what I mean? If we really hate ourselves, we'd be like, yes, I'm miserable. I love being miserable. Because I hate myself, so I'm going to be miserable. You don't like being miserable because deep inside you want to love yourself. You want to care for yourself. You want to take care of yourself. You don't like being unhappy, nor should you be. And so the second commandment, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. We know it as do unto others as what? As you want to be done to yourself. So what Jesus does, he wraps the commandments in the two most important things. Love God with all of your being and love each other as you do yourself. If we can do those two things, I think we have the commandments covered, don't we? Right? Look what happens. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there's no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Check out the ending of this exchange. The scribe acknowledged Jesus' response. He says, you answered correctly and wisely. You answered right. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus acknowledges his response. You are not far from the kingdom of God. This is about the most positive response we've seen Jesus have to a Pharisee, a Sadducee, his critics. You are not far from the kingdom of God. This really stands out to me. I've had a lot of discussions with people some who are struggling in their faith, struggling with doubt. I've had conversations with them. 
And there are times and in our conversation, I feel like they're so close to coming to faith. They're just, they're just like right there. They acknowledge, they, they realize something that they're hearing is true. You can sense that they're realizing that, yeah, you know what, that makes sense. But yet there's something that just prevents them. Something there that just like, they just can't make that step a confession of faith. And many times, it's not about knowledge. Many times it's not about what the questions they have. Right? They usually have all these series of questions. These questions that they need answered in order to believe. But it seems like no matter what those questions are, no matter what the answers they provide, it's still just not enough. They're so close. So close. It's interesting strategy here that the Pharisees, the Herodians, the, the scribes have, right? Their attempts to discredit Jesus. If we could just damage his reputation, people, make him seem unpopular, we'll get him, right? Maybe the people will turn on him. Maybe the people will realize that Jesus is not the guy to follow. Or maybe he will set himself up to be arrested. Or if we answer with our hypothetical questions, give up these scenarios, right? It'll make what he's teaching unreasonable, unbelievable. Perhaps if we distort his understanding of Scripture, trap him with questions, with questions that are unanswerable, we set him up to be wrong. Does that sound familiar? We can find ourselves in those kind of situations, whether it's yourself coming to you, people coming with questions, trying to make Christianity unpopular, Jesus unpopular, your answer is unreasonable, unanswerable, they will propose these hypothetical questions to make you feel like, see, you can't answer it, can you? That means Jesus isn't true, Christianity isn't true. My question to you today Can you answer that question? How far are you from the kingdom? I believe most of us here, if not a vast majority of us here, are on our way. We are there. We just haven't died yet. We're going to enjoy the kingdom of God. I believe most of us, and hopefully all of us at some point, that we'll receive the reception as we saw last week when the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the master. I believe most of us, if not all of us, will receive that. But I can't be naive to think that all of us are at that place right now. I don't know that. I don't know that. There may be some of us in this room who have all these questions that we're begging to be answered. Well, what about this? What about this scenario? Can you answer me this? Can you answer these questions? Because if you can give me these answers, then I will believe. But I'm going to bet you, 
Those aren't the things that are preventing you from believing. Because if you've been in that scenario, someone answers that question, and then you just have what? More questions. Well, then what about this? Well, what about this? What about this? How about this scenario? How about this? How about this? And it goes on and on and on. I don't think the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes there challenging Jesus was looking for the honest answer. They just wanted to defeat Jesus, regardless of what their heart told them. And I want to hope that in this case, that we're not in that situation, that our heart isn't preventing us from coming to faith. It's not about the unanswerable questions. Because if you have questions that need answered, there's people in this room can help you find the answers. Or just help you along the way that those aren't stumbling blocks to faith. But if it's because your heart does not want to surrender to Jesus, then it's not about those questions. And I hope that at some point, if you're struggling with doubt, or if you have questions that are preventing you from coming to faith, you'll say, I need to talk to somebody. Because one of the things in common, I'll end with this. Notice of all those three exchanges they had with Jesus, all those questions had to do with questions that they themselves struggled to answer. The Herodians and the Pharisees were in opposition. The Pharisees were not sympathetic to Caesar. The Herodians were because they were put in power. The Sadducees, they struggled with this idea of resurrection. And the scribes, they debated among themselves which was the greatest commandment. So they all had questions that they needed answered, and they went to Jesus. And Jesus answered them. My prayer for you If you have questions, go to Jesus and find somebody who can help you with those questions. Don't let those be the obstacles for you in coming to faith. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we come before you. Jesus, you remain undefeated. You are undefeated. But Lord, we recognize that there are people maybe listening or hearing this or whether they're in person or online, whatever it may be, who have questions, they struggle with doubt. Lord, I pray that I would seek your truth. You are the truth, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God. We want to give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.